This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. We continue our discussion of Hemingway's World One experience by looking at In Love and War, the 1996 film that used it for its inspiration. The film is based on the true story that would inspire A Farewell to Arms, Hemingway's war wounding, and the ill-fated romance with his nurse, Agnes von Karowski. In Love and War was directed by Richard Attenborough and starred Chris O'Donnell as Hemingway, Sandra Bullock as Agnes, and forming the third side of this love triangle, Hemingway's hospital roommate Henry Villard was played by Mackenzie Aston, and we are delighted that he joins us today. Mackenzie Aston has been working as an actor in film, television, and theater since his youth. The youngest son of actors John Aston and Patty Duke, and brother to actor Sean Aston, he has long held the belief that his success in show business is all relative. He can be seen of late on NBC's The Blacklist and Love and Death for HBO Max. Mackenzie Aston, welcome to One True Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, welcome. So how did this all come about? How did you get the part of Henry Villard in, in Love and War? I, I was uh, extremely lucky in that it, uh, it it came across as an offer. It was uh, something that I, I, I didn't even have to audition for, which... Uh, in the business of show is a great uh, luxury for for an actor, um, you know, because because they already like you, uh, and and I think that sort of uh, came about because of two other films that I had worked on previously. I I think I was a good fit for the part of Henry Villard uh, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, uh, Slender being one of them, so, you know, uh, uh, Ambassador Villard was a, a a relatively lean guy, especially in 1918. Uh, and I think that there's a, a certain, uh, genteel th that I just, you know, uh, have. I'm a nice guy and I read nice guy. And so I think that was helpful as well. And, um, from my understanding, uh, the producers and director uh, saw a film that I was in called Dream for an Insomniac. Uh, wherein wow. I, I wherein I wherein I played a a nice guy and uh, and they they thought that was was good enough, and so I was so fortunate to be handed this opportunity at 23 years old. When you're handed this role, you know that the producer is the son of the character that you're going to be playing. Yes, Dimitri, Dimitri Villard yes. pro produces the film. Does that alter your process at all? 
you know, it, it, it can come with a certain amount of, uh, angst, really, because you don't, you don't want to do a disservice to, um, to, to, to a, a real person if you're portraying them, uh, and certainly not do a disservice to a real person if you're portraying them in the presence of the person's son. Uh, and so, um, you know, there was, uh, definitely, um, from, from, you know, my point of view, I was, I just wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, uh, do it wrong. <laughs> well, was he alive at the point when you agreed to the role? What was what was the no, timing? I, th- I think I, th- I believe he he had passed earlier in in 1996, and it wasn't until I, I think maybe uh, April of 96 that uh, that I was offered the, the role, and 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 so he he had he had left this plane by the time we uh, began production, and so I didn't get the opportunity uh, to be. And I have to uh, to to say for for Dimitri to to suddenly go into. A, a recreation of his father's youth uh so so soon after his passing was was probably a pretty intense experience for 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 him uh for dimitri um you know but uh i i never felt any any sort of pressure or uh, or concern from 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 his end you know they were they were happy at least from my perspective they were happy with 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 what they got and uh you know, they. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see people, you know, uh, whispering behind hands uh, about me doing it wrong. Did you? Did you talk to Dimitri about his father? And Certainly, you had conversations about that. What came about from those conversations? Well, you know, I, what was fortunate was to have uh, uh, Mr. Villard, Henry Villard's book to go on. You know, uh, uh, Hemingway and Love and War. Uh, which was uh, co- co-written uh, with uh, James Nagel. Uh, and so most of Mr. Villard's uh, recollections were already on the page. Um, and, you know, my, my questions for uh, Dimitri, you know, were more about what his father might have remembered or what he could remember of his father's remembrance that didn't make the book. And, you know, it's uh, coming up on... 30 years yeah, now. Right. So I, I wish, I wish I could pull some memory, uh, to say the, he specifically told me this or that. The feeling that I got from Dimitri about his dad, which is actually a terrific, um, vantage point, uh, was that his dad was a, a, a decent human being, uh, you know, that carried himself with, uh, a, a modicum of composure and, 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 and did the best he could to do the best he could in any circumstance. And certainly somebody who volunteers to go drive an ambulance, uh, in, in World War One, you know, the, the baseline there is, uh, you got to imagine is a, is a decent human being. So I, I completely agree with that. And watching the film, maybe want to address that with you because, okay, so I understand that Henry Villard has to compete with the affections for, of Agnes von Krauske with Hemingway, but Hemingway wasn't really Hemingway at the time. He was some 18 year old kid and Henry Villard was just as valorous and he was a Harvard kid. Why so? Why the uh, instinct to defer to uh, for, for, to Hemingway for, yeah. for the char- for the character? Yeah, in, in weren't, the you film? Ir- weren't you irritated at that in when you when you read the script that you, you didn't have a fair fight? Well, I, so now I'm not sure if uh, I, I feel like maybe what I brought uh, with me personally, what Mackenzie, what Mac brought with him to Italy uh, in 1996 uh, was. 
uh, maybe perhaps unfair to the character of Henry Villard in that I had a tremendous respect and appreciation uh, for Hemingway and for Hemingway's mm. work. Uh, and so just in, you know, in my bones, there already existed a, a deference of sorts. But I, but I think, I, I think in terms of the portrayal and in terms of the film, I think what becomes evident uh, right off the bat is that uh, Hemingway, e- even at 18, had a tremendous amount of charisma and charm and joie de vivre and uh, elan and uh, all sorts of other non-English words uh, but he just had a, you know he had that spark he had something yeah. special about him and and so I, I think it was evident um, I, I'm presuming it was evident uh, to, 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 to Henry uh, you know all those years ago that there was an advantage that this this kid from Oak Park uh, uh, had intrinsically yeah that's a that's a great point and it's it's really a mature observation on the young Henry's part is even that he'll put his two cents in and trying to get Agnes. But in the end, Hemingway is Hemingway. And you have to, you have to, in fact, that's really maybe the, your character's maturation in the movie is that he says he's more than all right. Hemingway is more than all right. In other words, right. you're, he sort of recognizes that Agnes belongs with, with Hemingway. Right. That there was, that there was something between the two of them that superseded whatever, uh, Harry might have thought existed. Yeah. And also I think it's emblematic of the kind of person that Henry Villard was, uh, you know, that later in life he became a diplomat and, uh, and was, you know, he was rather diplomatic in those yeah, circumstances yeah. Uh, as portrayed in the film. Now, what's fascinating to me, and I, I hope I don't uh, d- digress too much uh, f- from the you know focus, but what's fascinating to me uh, upon taking another look at uh, Henry Villard's book, Hemingway in Love and War, The Lost Diaries of Agnes von Karowski, uh, was to recognize that there, there were liberties taken within the story uh, in the film. Uh, in terms of advancing the story in the film and making it more dramatic and and so on and so forth, you know, at least at least by my most recent reading, it it appears as though perhaps Agnes and 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 Ernie uh, never consummated this romance. And I know times were different, and maybe that was not something that took place. But it's fascinating to me that that in, you know, in in telling the story, we we depart uh, yeah. you know f- from from the truth. Uh, you know, in order to, to, to make it more exciting for the audience. That's, yes, sure. And there's, there's also that moment where one of the relatives of this soldier that Hemingway, the young Hemingway heroically tried to rescue and stand in front of, that they come and sort of pay tribute to how courageous Hemingway was. And your character sort of looks on and says, sort of doesn't say, but thinks, Wow, that's probably an action I couldn't have taken. So sort of recognize that maybe Hemingway is of a different, different ilk. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, uh, I, I would like to think, uh, that, you know, were the circumstances, uh, different, uh, that, uh, Mr. Villard would have, yeah. have done the same uh, damn thing, but the circumstances were not different. Yeah. And, and in that moment in the, in the film, and I would imagine, uh, in, in real life in, in Italy in 1918 or 17 or 18, you know that that Henry would have recognized the same. That's a great point. You know, reading Hemingway in Love and War, one of the striking things to me is how persistent Henry lobbied his parents to go overseas to fight in World War One or to participate mm-hmm. in World War One. Mm-hmm. You can't even imagine a hundred years later somebody being so 
strident in trying to get in the mix. Yeah, it's really, it, it's really admirable. It it is, and it's you know, circumstances obviously are are, are quite uh, different geopolitically, and I, I think I think there there may be some examples of late where you see Americans that have uh, volunteered to go uh, fight alongside the Ukrainian. Um, uh, against you know against the the, the great uh, the great power that uh, that Russia uh, you know claims to be at least and I and I I know well I don't know but I am led to believe uh, based on historical uh, you know uh, information that that in World War One there was a similar sort of sentiment that the, that the Germans uh, you know were the bad guys and we had to go you know beat the Kaiser and you know knock out the Hun and so forth um, so I mean there there is. What's that wonderful and terrifying uh, maxim that that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other scene that comes to mind in this tense love triangle mm-hmm. was that picnic. Mm-hmm. There's the, the the three of you, the three characters go out on a picnic, and it's just so painful. It's exactly as painful as a real life, <laughs> right? A uh, picnic with two guys and one girl would be right. So, do you have do you, do you have any recollections that where was that filmed? So, the, so there were two. So, the, the picnic uh, uh, scenes uh, take place uh, uh, one by a, a lake, which was, gosh, about an hour, about an hour's drive from uh, uh, Vittorio Veneto, which is where the production oh, wow. was based. Yeah, uh, and I I should have looked it up. I cannot remember the name of the lake, but it, it was just this pristine, beautiful place, you know, uh, sort of tucked in a, uh, a, a, t- a tiny little valley, um, you know, between two stark, you know, pieces of the Dolomite Mountains. Um, and, and then there was a, a second scene that was filmed on a bridge over a much larger lake. Uh, so those were two different lakes uh, uh, where we filmed. And so the, the, the you know, the, the date scene, although it takes place in over a matter of hours, it was a couple of different days that we filmed it. And I have, I have nothing but you know, spectacular memories of both of those experiences. You know, it, it's, it's so stunningly beautiful, yes. the, the, the landscape there. And, 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 you know, it actually makes sense to me, um, how much of uh, Hemingway's Farewell to Arms is dedicated to describing the land, uh, and the, you know, the, the, the biome where he is, because it's just, it is stunningly, stunningly beautiful. And, you know, as an American, you, there's, there's plenty of places in this country that are also stunningly beautiful, but there's something different about being over there. Um, One of the things that your film demonstrates is that there are some scenes where the scene is so gorgeous and such carnage took place on it. It's, in, it's, in, it's terrifying. So it's, it's, absolute- that, it's that juxtaposition of... Right. The Italian right. countryside in 1918 would have been like paradise uh, if it isn't still. And there it was just littered with dead bodies. Yeah, with carnage, yeah. like you say, soaked with blood. Yeah, uh, which is, you know, there's a, there's a terrific transition uh, very early in the film um, uh, where uh, uh, Sandra Bullock's character, Agnes von Kurowski, is talking about Italian men and something that she has, uh, you know, read that they yeah. there, there are women in their lives, but the, the only people they truly, truly love are their mamas. And then it there's a there's sort of a a quick uh, fade to or quick cut to the battlefield and you hear you know you hear somebody who's about to die screaming yeah. for their mother and That's, it's it, it's it's small uh, the the moment but it is powerful great moment yeah you know that's the thing about that was fascinating to me in the rewatch that I just did and I hadn't seen it in 20 years or so 
you know, how we're still sort of, uh, doing this stuff. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's, there's not as many in terms of numbers of people involved in warring with one another, but we're, we're still here. There's still people dying in trenches. And, and just, you know, a hundred years down the road, it just I, makes me, it makes the pacifist in me wish that we could do a little better. Now, and granted, I have the privilege to be able to say that. Ah. So it goes. Yeah. So the the title in Love and War to pick up on what you're just saying in Love and War is seems like it's more of a meditation about these two grand concepts, war and love. That mm-hmm. the story would really need to be successful, whether it was about a young Ernest Hemingway or any person that the same men and women would be going through the same thing as they have years and centuries before and Mm -hmm. as they are today, right? So this story is kind of an eternal one. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we make the best with what we're, uh, uh, handed. You know, we, we, we do what we can, uh, you know, to, to battle our way through, (laughs) to borrow the phrase, to battle our way through the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Uh, and, you know, it is, uh, perfectly natural, um, against a backdrop of so much, um, death and destruction to want to focus on, uh, what isn't death and what isn't right. destruction. Yeah. And again, I'm, uh, you know, struck with, uh, uh, not just in, in the novel, uh, Farewell to Arms, but in, in the letters that appear in, um, Henry Villard's book, uh, how much description there is of engaging in, uh, food, in, in dinner, in what we eat, in what, you know, what we drank, you know, these, you know, the things that nourish us, uh, obviously, which are quite the opposite of that, which, uh, kills us. Yeah. In A Farewell to Arms, Frederick Henry's blown up when he's eating pasta, right. shuta, and cheese, right? right? It's just right. That, com- cheese, yeah. that, that combination of, of, of those things. So, Mackenzie, you mentioned the Vittorio Veneto. What were the other locations? Did you only film in Italy or were there other places? Uh, no, it was, um, uh, Italy, uh, and then on, uh, stage at Shepherd and Studios in London. Uh, or just outside of London, London. Okay. Uh, and, and then, um, a few sequences in, uh, Montreal, one of which, uh, didn't make the finished uh, film. Uh, actually, the, the stuff that I was in Montreal to film, it, it, originally, the original screenplay, um, the story was bookended by Hemingway's funeral. And we see, uh, uh, Car- uh Agnes von Kurowski there and we see Henry Villard there. And, uh, there's a, you know, brief exchange about, you know, having been children together. Uh, and what could have been, perhaps, uh, <clears throat> but the, it was found that it didn't uh, it didn't test very well. People people didn't want to start and end with a with a funeral, which is understandable. Um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience uh, to have gone uh, to Montreal with the gang. And the other, I think, the other sequence they filmed there was uh, Walloon Lake when Agnes goes to see Ernie uh, they, after they've you know ended their relationship, but she goes to sort of check on him. They filmed that in Canada. Yeah, that was uh, just outside of Montreal. What about the scene, the last scene you're in, you're, quote, grown up, you're in a very nice suit. Right. Uh, You and Agnes reunite at just a... Cup of, uh, cup of tea or something like that. Where right, where that, was that filmed? That that was at Shepherd and Studios. That okay. was uh, on stage. I think stage C at Shepherd and Studios, uh, in, uh, just outside of, uh, of London. I think it's near Staines, technically. Did you have to return that suit? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I did. All of those clothes were so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that w- I've had two. I've had a few occasions now uh, working on period pictures. Uh, 
uh, where I just remember being so struck with uh, how heavy, thick, yeah. and hot uh, those, uh, you know, those clothes were. And so all of the stuff that you see the ambulance drivers and the soldiers, uh, doing, you know, throughout uh, the war, it, it's, it's just crazy Whoa. how much, right. yeah. yeah, you know, and I would imagine in the winter, that's a great thing. Um, but not in the summer. I, there was another, uh, uh project that I worked on, um, uh, that takes place just after the civil war. And, uh, you know, the clothes were as close as, as we could get to a, a union, yeah. uh, uh, uniform. And I, it was, you know, summer in Oklahoma and I, I was, it was scary. That's, that's a tough one. The, I want to ask you about the three figures or three of the figures that you worked with on In Love and War, Richard Attenborough, mm. Chris O'Donnell, and Sandra Bullock. And maybe we can start with the director. Did you immediately know that Richard Attenborough was going to direct? And what was your experience? Uh, yes, uh, the, the, the offer, uh, you know, came from, um, Attenborough and the production company. And so I knew right away, uh, that I was so lucky to get to work, uh, with him. Yeah. He, he was an absolute delight. He was so much fun and, and we liked one another. We, we, we liked one another. We got along, uh, or got on, as they say over there. He would have been, I guess, in his, in his early seventies at this point and, and was, you know, uh, thrilled to be working uh, because you know he just sort of carried himself with a uh, a recognition and grace uh you know that he was lucky to be doing what he was doing um he had wonderful stories uh to tell when we weren't you know actively working on stuff um he was just he was just fun you know he just had a great you know and, and so he insisted everybody call him dicky uh, which was amazing i couldn't i couldn't do it i don't know why and so you know i, I know why you can call him that well no, it just yeah. it, it ended up that instead of saying that aloud i would sort of wait till he was looking my direction and then nod as if i wanted to say something and then he would recognize me and i would carry on but um there was there was a terrific uh, you can't call the director of gandhi dicky i'm sorry I mean, it's just that, you can't sort of where yeah. I was coming yeah, from. I and, and, I, no. and I don't know. You know, other people did, and that's just fine. And maybe I did him a disservice by not calling it what he wanted to be called. There was something – but he was just so clever and so funny and so – Willing to, co uh, to, to cooperate and collaborate. Um, you know, there were a couple of days, the, the crew that he, that uh, was working with us, uh, was a crew that, you know, he, he had worked with a number of times over the years, uh, a lot of whom were themselves Academy Award winners, uh, you know, people with tremendous experience. The, the sound mixer, it tells me in a conversation, you know, we were having a conversation casually one day during a, uh, a change in, you know, camera setups. Uh, and he mentions how he was, he just happened to be looking at, uh, Stanley, uh, Kubrick when he thinks he got the idea for the cut in 2001 where it goes from the bone to the spaceship. And this was just a thing he mentioned wow. that he, he think, you know, so these are, this is the caliber of person that's yeah. working on that film. So there were days where we would all get in to do a rehearsal and, and Richard or Dickie or, Lord Attenborough uh, would say, all right, and then point to somebody on the crew, somebody he respected and say, how are we doing it today? Wow. And th suddenly the first assistant director is directing the scene yeah. or the sound mixer is directing the scene and, you know, setting stuff up and, and everybody, you know, the, the, the willingness to appreciate the talents of the crew that he had assembled was just a testament to the kind of, in my opinion, artist that the guy was. When he was, when we interviewed Dimitri, he said that 
there was no negotiations. He flew out to LA and sort of said, I'm directing this. I, nobody else can direct this but me. What do you think appealed to him about this story so much? Oof, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, so, so, so many things. Uh, first of all, the opportunity to focus on the, the positive, you know, the, the first word is love before the war part. Yeah. Um, I, I think that he was interested. I, w- I would like to think that he was interested in giving a perspective on Hemingway's experience, um, that included, uh, the, the, the feminine experience. Yes. You know, um, uh, Sandy's character is, uh, you know, f- for lack of a better, Word, where I, I think, it, you know, in, in fact, is, is sort of the star of the film. You know, it's, it's her, those are her diaries that this is based on, or her character's diaries that this is based on. And, and although, although he is, um, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Hemingway's depiction of women, I, I, I think we have grown over the past, uh, you know, quarter century at least, uh, in recognizing that perhaps, um, whether well, it's definitely from a, a male perspective. And so, um, you know, uh, Richard w- was one of those guys, who, I believe, who had an under- understanding that there was a, a great deal uh, more to be offered from the feminine perspective. Yes. And 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 I feel I feel like that's evident in in a lot of his in a lot of his work. And so, you know, I, I'm sure the opportunity to to have a, a different take on this incredibly big, almost mythic figure that that is and was Ernest Hemingway. Uh, was an opportunity that he wanted to to take, and uh, who knows? Maybe he wanted to spend the summer in Italy. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, that that's a that's an excellent way to think about it. And so, th- speaking of, of the the feminine perspective, what does Sandra Bullock bring to the role of of Agnes as you rewatch it? You know, it's interesting because I, th- I think my perspective has changed over the years. You know, for starters, it's Sandra Bullock, and she is. Um, an absolutely uh, beautiful and charismatic and exciting uh, h- human being, just like as a as a person, she's fun to be around. She has a terrific sense of humor. She's um, interesting and well read and intelligent and funny and uh, mischievous and just exciting. And and I think that those, at least based on my reading. Uh, those are a lot of the uh, aspects of Agnes von Kurowski. I think that appealed so much, it appealed enough to Hemingway to to, to put her in print. Uh, what's the word? Lionize? Uh, no, there's another word. To immortalize in in uh, Affair Water Arms. I, I know, and I think this is. So we're now we're going to get into my own psychoanalysis. I I, I think perhaps because the film wasn't as successful as uh, a lot of us had hoped it would be. There was a pen, there was the a potential to look for reasons why. And I think that I, at a certain point, you know, when I was much younger, presumed that, uh, Sandy's appeal and, and, and Chris's appeal were so rooted in, um, modern day types of, uh, appeal, uh, that it, uh, that it just sort of didn't work for a period piece. I have come to recognize that that thinking was absolutely wrong because, because people are people. Right. Um, and you know, the, the, the same kind of person could quite easily have existed within the confines of 1918 as well. One quality of Sandra Bullock that I wonder if you, if you see is if you're a Red Cross nurse, you have to put up with oh. 200 men for every other female. So you have right. to, 
hold your own. You have to be sassy. You have to give back as good as you get. And I think that is a quality that she is just nobody nobody's gonna back her down and she's fantastic in that respect yeah Ab- absolutely yeah uh, she she was uh then and uh and continues to be uh now at least uh at least you know from outward appearances uh i you know watching the film again i think i was also a lot more um impressed by her performance you know there is there's a ton of subtlety in there that i i just must have uh you know missed uh, the the first time that I saw it, and she's, I mean, she's just a gifted, gifted actress. I think it was easy for people who did not like the film to blame its lack of success or the fact that it wasn't a, a blockbuster um, on the two biggest stars. You know, that's just that's and, the way and, it goes, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and especially over the last you know half century or so, the the antihero has become uh, uh, such a selling point. Um, for, for newspapers and magazines and, and now, of course, the internet, uh, that, that when someone is successful, when someone gets to a certain point where they are lauded, you know, by the general public, uh, almost unassailably, the goal becomes assail them. And so, yeah. um, you know, which is not to say that, you know, people that Chris and Sandy were, were dragged through the mud for this, because certainly I, I don't believe they were, but, you know, when we look for reasons why something didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, you know, there, there's, it's easy to find stuff uh, to pick on. The, when we spoke to Dimitri, he mentioned that the three actresses under consideration for Agnes were Julia Roberts, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Sandra Bullock. So obviously mm-hmm. they were able to pick from the, uh, a list of, uh, in ni- 1996. And, Absolutely. As, and, but I, since that interview, I couldn't stop thinking about those three, I was like replaying the movie with switching out the roles. And can you, what would Julia Roberts or Michelle Pfeiffer have been like? Do you think, uh, Sandra Bullock does something that the, the other two can't do? <laughs> Oh man, that's tough to say. And that's, that's the kind of question that can get somebody in trouble if somebody, <laughs> you know, stumbles across, uh, the podcast. Um, but, I, well, you know. Not better or worse, you know. Right, of not course. Be- yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. Actually, this sort of dovetails with, uh, thinking that I have. So people have always said, as long as there have been movies, that the book is better than the movie. And, you know, I have theories, and I'm sure they're not anything groundbreaking about about why. And oftentimes I believe that this is true because nothing can compete with the, the human imagination. You know, where, where, where we fill in, the, where our brains fill in the blanks, uh, you know, uh, when we're reading a book, you know, how we, uh, you know, envision something is, 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 you know, particularized to us and is un, un, unbeatable in terms of its uh, representation of reality in our own minds. And so, 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 so your read of Fairwater Arms is different than my read of Fairwater Arms, but they are both, um, incredibly, incredibly valued. They're, they're specifically tailored to our interpretation of, right. you know, all those sorts of things. And so with that in mind, each of those people, Sandy, Julia Roberts, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, they're going to bring, uh, you know, particularization and individuality that is, uh, you know, uh, that is their own and, and that has tremendous appeal, uh, based on its individuality. So you know, certainly all three of them, you know, would have done a terrific job. You know, it just, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to say because I keep, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm poo pooing the, the fact that it wasn't a success. You know, there's, there's part of me that wonders if its lack of success is a testament to the fact that it was, uh, you know, 
a, a good story. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, Hemingway in Love and War is not a narrative per se, right? It, this was made right. into a narrative. Right. Uh, in any case, I admire your Henry Villard-like diplomacy in answering <laughs> that question. You've, you've, you've sublimated the character. I think that that's great. So, um, what about Chris O'Donnell? The one, the uh, only other actor I learned about in competition for that role or consideration for that role was Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser. Oh, interesting. But Dim- Dimitri was saying that Chris O'Donnell, and actually he looks very yeah. much like a young Hemingway. Yeah, the picture, the picture that, that, that Henry Villard took that, that was on the original cover of the uh, Hemingway and Love and War, uh, uh release, uh, where it, Hemingway's on his side with a big smile in the yeah. hospital bed. I mean, that looks like, that looks like Chris. Uh, so, so I don't know that anybody else, uh, would, would have fit, uh, as, as well. And, you know, there, there, there definitely were similarities in terms of, in terms of moxie, in terms of confidence, in terms of cockiness, if I can say that, uh, that exists, uh, you know, uh, that existed and still exists, I'm sure, in, in, in Chris that, uh, were comparable to Hemingway's, uh, youthfulness and, and, and bravado and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so I, th- I think that was, I think that was a good fit. I, I certainly know, like, <laughs> at, at some point, probably in the early 2000s, uh, you know, after a, a dram or two, I, 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 you know, recast the movie in my head too. And, and I, and I, what I came up with, uh, cause I know people, I, I think people felt the age difference wasn't that stark in terms of, you know, between, uh, Bullock and O'Donnell. Um, whereas uh, yeah. in the, in the, in the, you know, in the telling of Hemingway and Love and War, the, the, the age difference between Agnes and, and, and Hemingway's is a, is a big deal. Um, and so, and so I think I, I think I, I think in my head I cast Mayor Winningham and Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> uh, which is again vastly different yes. from from what it ended up on the screen. And who knows? It's so tough to say what what will work and what will not work. So, the one challenge that I would have. I would wonder from Chris O'Donnell's perspective, maybe you can talk about this as an actor, is he had to play kind of a punky, semi-obnoxious 18-year-old, but with the knowledge that this is the same guy who's going to go on to write The Old Man in the Sea, win the Nobel Prize, and Mm -hmm. be one of the most Mm -hmm. celebrated American writers ever. So how do you strike that balance so I, honestly, I don't know how Chris did it because th- th- that is, and, and perhaps my perspective on this is colored by my own um, admiration and and enamoration of, uh, 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 I don't even think that's a word, enamor- it, uh, being so enamored sure. <laughs> of, uh, of Hemingway, but he stepped right into that fearlessly uh, and, and, and played the part, you know, played... There's a, you know, there's plenty of great advice I've gotten from my father, but one of the ones, you know, about acting, and one of the ones that s- stick with me is just play the scene. You know, it's very simple. It's on the page. Play the scene. Speak the speech. I pray you. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. And I think that's what Chris did. I think Chris was 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 unaffected by the idea of the of the prominence of of of, of what Hemingway would become and was absolutely uh, fearless in just stepping in yeah. and playing the scene the most recent watching of this movie for me the one mm-hmm. character i was not going to ask you about this guy but the italian doctor caracciolo mm-hmm. who ends up with agnes at least temporarily um and I looked a little bit, I looked up the uh, actor Emilio, Emilio Bonucci. Bonucci. Yeah. I thought yeah. 
He was so elegant, not so over the, not over the top. This is a, not to make this a compound question, but when you, your character and the young Hemingway first see this guy, your, your instinct is, well, we're not going to be able to compete with a, right, right. a handsome Italian doctor. I mean, and Hemingway's like, yes, we are. You know, I am, you know, right, and that, that's right. kind of the difference in, in, either confidence or arrogance or self-confidence and uh, between the two of you. Right. But do you, how how many scenes were you in with him or did you, did you cross paths with Emilio Bonucci at all? I, I don't believe we were in any scenes together. I, I may have been in the background. Like of you a, saw a, him a, or something. Yeah, yeah. There may have been a, a brief discussion with, with, with he and uh, Agnes uh, in the, in the hospital ward, but I, I may even be wrong about that. Uh, we didn't have any scenes together and, uh, which is unfortunate, but we, we did have the opportunity to, you know, exchange uh, pleasantries uh, a few times. Um, and he's so good in the movie. He's yeah. exactly what yeah. you said. There's, there's, there's this elegance, uh, this understated elegance that he has all the way through, whether things are going well for him or things are, are, are going poorly for him. And he's, I just, you know, there's a, he's just so good. He's, in the movie. he's playing the long game in his right. courtship. You know, <laughs> right. Right. uh, you guys are, are like, you guys are in sprints. You and Hemingway are in sprints. <laughs> right. And he's right. like, you know what? We're going to let this play out. I bet I'm going to win in the end. You know, right. It's very, very confident. I, I, oh, he's terrific. And, and, uh, you know, in this, uh, most recent rewatch, especially, I, I, I sort of fell for him all over again. Yeah. He's just so elegant. Um, we did have one experience. So I, uh, they, they filmed, I f- should have mentioned this. They filmed in Venice, uh, for a week, uh, obviously. You, I mean, you can see that the camera sure. is in Venice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't on the schedule that entire week, but I, uh, was able to travel with the production, which was a, a pretty special way to see Venice. Uh, in that, um, I, I rode in, uh, with the crew in the morning. Uh, you know, we had to get to, they had to get to St. Mark's Square, you know, before the pigeons got there, essentially, yeah. <laughs> which is hard to do. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, it, the sun was, it was dawn, you know, the sun was just coming up and, um, and to be in that square when there's nobody there yep. was really, really, really spectacular. And then I just sort of backpacked, you know, traipsed around Venice for, for three or four days, uh, while they were filming. Which was so spectacular. And this is, hopefully I'm not talking out of school. <laughs> I, I was uh, drinking uh, then, but I wasn't engaging in uh, anything else. Uh, uh, although um, e- Emilio asked me at one point, because he saw me, you know, with my backpack and I was not on the schedule or anything like that. And he said, he said to me, he said, and so are you, do you, do you smoke? And he was, uh, I believe, referencing uh, marijuana. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I do, but I'm not doing it right now. So, but, uh, you know, I've taken a little break, blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, that is too bad because to be in Venice and smoke. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it, it came from left field yeah. as far as I was concerned. Like, I, I could not believe, number one, that there was like, you know, that I was having this conversation yeah. with, with the, you know, this, this famous Italian actor who was a, a, a few years older than me, but who was encouraging well, me to get stoned in Venice. <laughs> I should have listened. That's wisdom from Emilio. That's great. <laughs> I, sh- yeah. I should have listened. What, what you're describing, and it started with your explanation of Richard Attenborough, the way he sort of wasn't in, unified command where he sort of let other people take control. It sounds like a pretty unacrimonious 
oh. production, people got along, no star trips or anything that you hear about? Not that I was aware of. And, and I, and I'm fairly observant when it comes to stuff like that. I, I just, uh, there's, there's part of me that is kind of keyed into, uh, you know, being interested in drama. Um, and I, I didn't, you know, I, <laughs> I hesitated saying this because of the thing about the poker table. If uh, if you don't know who the sucker is, so hopefully yeah. <laughs> I wasn't the problem. Um, but no, I didn't see any of that. And you know, there was I, I think because you know by by that point in his career, multi Oscar winner. Um, uh, not only that, he had become somewhat of a uh, of an activist for the, the the peaceful resolution for all of mankind. I don't know if you take a look yeah. at this the the Oscar acceptance speech of Attenborough's uh, for Gandhi. It is it is an incredibly I think best director. It is incredibly um, beautiful, um, well spoken um, plea for us to be civil in solving our differences. Um, you know, so, sort of echoing the message that uh, that the the man about whom Gandhi was yeah, about, right. um, you know, it, it's just such, it's such a wonderful, so Richard just carried himself with a, with a kind of, um, a peaceful,ness that, that permeated and that can go through the whole, the whole production. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Mackenzie, maybe one of the ways we can, we can wind down that I haven't even asked you, although you've alluded to it was the way Hemingway affected your education, your, your life mm-hmm. as a reader and mm-hmm. as a artist. Yeah, so he's big in there, and and you know it, it's it's interesting. I, I guess it's sort of reflective of Hemingway's experiences in World War One, in that stuff that happens to us in our formative years, especially as one sort of uh, starts putting their toes into uh, finger quotes manhood, they they have a long lasting effect. You know, they they sort of. Um, they, they set the stage for who we are and who we become. And at the age of, uh, 17, 18, 19, starting a little bit before that, I think, I think Farewell to Arms would have been 10th grade English. Um, but it affected me. And, and I know that it affected a teacher that I really, 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 really liked. Uh, and because of her appreciation of, of his prowess, of Hemingway's prowess, um, I took to him. And so f- for me, Going into making this picture was an incredible, incredible privilege, uh, and and you know luck uh, to, to to help tell a story about this guy that I liked so much. What's amazing and what I'm very grateful for, particularly for this podcast, is the opportunity to re- opportunity to to revisit *A Farewell to Arms*, to revisit *In Love and War* the film. And in Love and War, Hemingway in Love and War, the book, with the perspective that I have now as a near 50 year old. Yeah. Um, because it's different. There is an incredible appreciation. I, you know, I'm, I'm still stunned, uh, w- with his ability with the language, Hemingway's ability with the language. I'm still, uh, stunned by how well he can put together uh, you know, a sentence uh, which uh, obviously we're seeing, you know, several layers down because he's, you know, he's he's had the sentence, then pared it down, then pared it down, then pared it down. But <clears throat> in terms of having Hemingway's influence in 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 my life, it's it's it was certainly greater as a smaller child, as as more of a boy. Um, so much so, and uh, you know, forgive me, I do uh, talk. Um, there's uh, there's a letter uh, that I'm sure you've come across. Uh, over the years, uh, from from Hemingway to Fitzgerald, uh, where he talks about what his idea of heaven yeah. would be, 
And it's, you know, as you know, two, two houses in the same town, one where he lives with his wife and his kids and he's happy and monogamous and wonderful in another house on the other side of town with nine different floors and nine different mistresses on nine different floors and copies of the dial and the new republic uh, for toilet paper, <laughs> etc. cetera. And, uh, you know, 18, 17, 18, I thought this was, you know, an incredibly brilliant and honest yeah. depiction of 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 manhood you know and there's aspects of of it that i, I still uh you know believe you know he 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 really points out uh you know this this thing that men have where they 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 want it all over here and they want it all over there mm-hmm. and they want they want both and there's a, obviously a, a dichotomy there now when i was you know 17 and 18 i was i was rooting for uh i was rooting for the two houses um, yeah. The letter ends, as you may remember, the letter ends with Hemingway having to rush into town to, to lock up the chastity belts on his nine different mistresses <laughs> because the famous monogamist Fitzgerald was seen riding into town. As I've grown older, I've come to recognize that the real hero of that yeah. letter is not the houses and the, and the mistresses or the trout stream or the bull ring. It's the monogamist. Yeah. It's Fitzgerald, you know, who had his own problems for sure. But it's interesting. It's interesting how much my perspective on both that letter, on the book, on the movie has changed as I've gotten a little bit uh, older. You know, the the expression about youth being wasted on the young uh, has some kernels in there. What's great about art and literature is that you uh, age with it as you as you as you re-examine uh, it. That when we had Stacy Keach on to talk about Hemingway, who played Hemingway in a in a great, really yeah. interesting miniseries, he yeah. said that we one of the things that we talked about was Hemingway's iceberg theory, which is mm-hmm. Hemingway, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, omission, which is going to, as you were saying, let the imagination of the of the reader take over. And Stacy Keach was talking about a, a a parallel in acting. Do you see the same thing that there's you can have a, a version of the iceberg theory as an actor? Absolutely, unequivocally, uh, wholeheartedly, uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, my dad uh, has just retired, uh, well, just, it's about two years ago now, uh, after teaching uh, acting uh, and running the theater program at Johns Hopkins University here in Baltimore, where I live. Uh, and, you know, he has many things to say uh, about acting, but he, there is a focus he has on particularization, the idea being that you you you, you do the character work so much so that you build this stuff underneath, like like the iceberg, and and so that what comes out of your mouth is particularized in a way because it's attached to all this other stuff going on. And 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 so Mr. Keach is absolutely right in that. And, and I'll say this: um, it helps when it helps when something is well written. Yeah. It's easier to particularize stuff um, or, or to to al- allow the existence of the rest of the iceberg underneath when what's on top is 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 well written and and sounds like what a human being might say. You'll you'll come across stuff in 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 American television if I can uh, talk a little uh, smack. It's not as good. Yeah. And so there's, you know, and I'm guilty of it too, because I work a lot in American television, but it's, it's tougher to, to particularize to, to, to have the rest of that iceberg down there when it's, you know, sort of put together just to sell washing machines. Sometimes I watch, you know, me knowing very little about movies. I, I watch really early movies, like a hundred years ago. 
and mm-hmm. there, it's the it's such histrionics overplaying and that's just mm-hmm. just the way writing kind of evolves over the years and someone like Hemingway would say no 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 we're going to do it a different way now it seems like cinema and acting had a similar sort of truncation Absolutely. You, you, and I think that there's a, uh, you know, a historical and anthropological, uh, an evolutionary aspect of that that, that makes sense, uh, just based on, uh, you know, physicality. You know, even before the advent of, 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 of film, we were all doing this stuff on the stage. And so there was, you know, you have people in the front row and then you have, uh, you know, the, the people in a number of rows out. And so there was a certain necessity. Uh, that you had to go go big, you know, play play for the for the folks in the back, um, yeah. but that obviously has changed uh, with the ability to get closer and closer and and closer. And so, um, you know, there's there's good and bad to to, to both. I, I I think, you know, it's it's funny and and uh, pardon the, the the digression. The the I couldn't find my old copy of Farewell to Arms. I think it's actually at my uh, in laws. But so I, I went went out and grabbed a, a newer one, and it's it's one that has uh, the revisions yes. uh, in it, and I was fascinated. Number one, like I, I can't imagine what uh, you know Hemingway himself would think about the the you know the the alternative endings being uh, allowed to be out there, and I would that would oof, I mean I would imagine I mean like the guy worked so freaking hard to get it just just right don't give away my but but my he secrets, kept it all you know he, he yeah, kept yeah. it all he kept it all and and i am so i me the reader and me the you know the the, the creative i'm so, i was so grateful to see some of the alternative endings because you know he's become this mythic uh, uh figure in in american literature and and the presumption is that it just he just sat down and 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 god or whatever came through him onto the page but that was the thing the guy worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and there's one oh man i i know that you're familiar with it it just it it in in terms of the, the iceberg stuff it, to to me it's like he inverted the iceberg it's almost like he was being a smart ass and in order to just get out what he wanted to say, what he would never use as as the ending. But this one, it just so the very first one, the nada yeah. ending. That's all there is to the story. Catherine died, and you will die, and I will die, and that is all I can promise you. To me, feels like such a like. I mean, that's what he wants to say, but he's not going to say that. And and so, I pardon the digression, no, no. but the the, opp- the opportunity to see that in print, you know, it was, it was just part of his process. Was it just made it made him more accessible in a way that that I that I didn't expect, you know, a, a, a month ago, uh, you know, before uh, this came into my, on the horizon. When you when you look at Hemingway's process, it's almost always a process of paring down. So he'll mm-hmm. say something out loud just to, to bring it to consciousness, and then he'll have that tip of the iceberg. Well, you know, you were mentioning deleted scenes. Do you like, let's say, films that you enjoy or or TV shows that you enjoy? Do you like watching director's cuts or extended scenes and, and the like? Yeah, yes and no. You know, it depends. Because if something has come into my consciousness and it's in a place that I like, seeing something yeah. that that strays from that uh, is 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 off-putting uh, and can be, uh, you know, can, can detract from the original 
uh, uh, thing. <laughs> Though I, my, my wife had never seen Ishtar. Uh, and I love that movie. And I know it gets dragged through the dunes, but I love that movie, you know, for, for t- plenty of, uh, different reasons. Uh, and so we, we watched it, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 days ago or so when it was the director's cut that, that I, that I picked to watch. Uh, and, you know, it's far enough in the past, the original, uh, that I don't remember what the differences were. But I, you know, I, th- I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a healthy, um, perspective to have. If, if there's a director's cut to take a look at, uh, you know, it, it can be very, very good. Um, but, but like I said, sometimes, you know, something gets sealed into our consciousness in a, in a way that we like. Exactly, yeah. uh, any, any deviation from that is it's like listening to the Beatles outtakes. It's just a little disconcerting right. sometimes. Right. But- Although, <laughs> oh, that moment, that moment where yeah. Paul, Paul finds, get back. Uh, get back. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> we should, we should all moment. have such moments once in our oh. life, right? Well, yes, maybe, yes, maybe we can end. Is there a Hemingway adaptation that you would recommend because Hemingway oh. famously said, you know, it, it's all, they, they ruin all my work, everything. I mean, for, for sure, farewell to arms, but is there any adaptation of Hemingway's work that you would recommend? I honestly, I, I cannot answer that, uh, uh, to, to the, to the level of intimacy that it, uh, that it deserves. Um, I, I you know, uh, through my own failing, not being uh, versed enough uh, to, to to answer that, yeah, yeah, it's it's also tough because the book is better yeah, than the movie, the <laughs> and this from a guy who makes his living in movies, you know. But it's it's really, really, really hard. Sean, my brother, uh, was incredibly fortunate to be a part of adaptations of books that that have been well received by people who love the books. You know, the Lord of the Rings uh, f- features uh, are appreciated by at least. From, from my understanding, by by people sure. who appreciate yeah. the books, and so that's that's hard to do. That's very, very, very hard to do. I mean, there's part of me that wants to say to have and have not, uh, but I don't know how much of you know. Uh, I don't know how much of that is 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 Hemingway's and how much of it the got, title you know, <laughs> they got the, right they took the title that's it, yeah. right yeah that's and it. and I only say that because uh, you know because Bogart. Like, okay. I think Hemingway would have said the killers, the, the first, uh, the Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner killers. Yep. I think he liked, yep. he was okay with that. Well, I mean, if he was okay with that, then I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to go ahead and be okay with that. Mackenzie Aston, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. That's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on onetruepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh, no.